Good morning, everyone, and welcome to today's focus for Tuesday, April the 25th, 2023. It is currently 1026 a.m. Central Time. Today's focus is it about Jesus? Today's focus is it about Jesus? Is it really about Jesus? Are you sure? Are you sure? When you read that Bible verse, is it really about Jesus? Are you sure that it's about Jesus? Now, there is a common idea within much of the evangelical world. And that idea basically says the entire Bible is about Jesus. You can find Jesus in every single verse because every single verse is about Jesus. That is a very popular idea. I think they take that because Jesus, it it talks about him going to the Old Testament and demonstrating or testifying of those things that were about him. But that doesn't mean every verse is about him. It just means he went to the parts of the Old Testament that was about him and then explained those. It didn't mean he started in Genesis and went through every verse and said, that's about me. That's about me. I, that's just a ridiculous way, way to even read that or understand that concept. But it, it is popular within the evangelical mindset to think every verse is about Jesus or you can find Jesus in every verse. I am not one to hold to that philosophy, that hermeneutical principle. I reject that. I think that there are scriptures that are clearly about Jesus, and I think there are scriptures that if you try to make them about Jesus, you're reading something into the text. You're doing a lot of manipulating and twisting, and you're presupposing something onto the text. Now, the basic rule of thumb I follow is this. If I read something in the Old Testament, and I think, wow, wow, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think that could point to Jesus, or I think I could possibly see Jesus into this. Before I draw any dogmatic conclusions, I go to the New Testament to see first, is that Old Testament passage quoted in the New Testament? If it is quoted in the New Testament, is it quoted in a New Testament in any way that clearly and dogmatically points to Jesus? If I have an Old Testament passage and there is nothing clear in the New Testament quoting it or using it to point to Jesus, then I am going to be very, 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 very careful. If I see some similarities with things that may relate to Jesus, I may go, well, I don't know if you've seen this or or this is kind of interesting, but if you look at this situation and you look at this about Jesus, there are some similarities here. I am not claiming that is how the original, it was written for that purpose. So I think you just, my rule of thumb is if the New Testament doesn't clearly quote it and say it's about Jesus, then I'm going to be very careful. Now, if I go to an Old Testament passage, and sometimes I'm reading and I'm like, wow, this just seems odd. This seems weird. This, this just something is going on here that, that doesn't seem to make sense just from a very literal understanding of it. Then I may seek to see how it could point to Jesus, but I've got to have something very specific. I'm just not going to run to every passage and go, Oh, look, look, this is about Jesus. No, I'm, I'm going to be like, uh, let, let, you know what? Let's just figure out what it actually is about, what it's actually saying to the original recipients. And let's look at it in a logical, rational way and read this carefully. But a lot of people, whenever you even try to articulate that, they think it's crazy. They, they're like, you know, where are you from? Like, where did you learn that? And it's like, uh, it's called reading. <laughs> 
basic reading comprehension skills, right? You have to figure out what are the words are used? Who is it written to? When was it written? What is the message? Before I start going, ooh, wait a minute. I think that points to Jesus. Now, again, if I have the New Testament, quote it and clearly uses it to point to Jesus, well, then the argument is over. But if I don't have that, what am I relying on? Other than just trying to impose a hermeneutical principle that the entire Bible is about Jesus. I just think that that's slow down before you start saying things like that. There are clear passages in the Old Testament that are about Jesus. How do we know? Because the New Testament takes them, quotes them, and tells you they're about Jesus. Then you can be like, okay, other than that, you have to be very careful. Now, why am I bringing all of this up? And and I know I'm kind of going through that relatively quick, and we could spend a lot more time articulating that and demonstrating that. Uh, we did a We did a number of messages on typology where I address this whole problem where be where people go to the Old Testament, make everything a type of Jesus. And I, I, I greatly question that. So I, I've done teaching on it in the past. So you can look that up. Or if you need help finding it, of course, you can always email me newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Feel free to email me anytime and I'll do my best to get back to you and see if we can get you the information that you need. But for today's focus, is it about Jesus? Here's the reason I'm asking that question. Are you ready? Listen carefully. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 10. Okay, now that is, he just quoted Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 10. My beloved spake. And said unto me, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 10. My beloved spake and said unto me, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Now, what's that verse about? Is that verse about Jesus? Do I understand that the beloved is Jesus and that uh, and that he says, and I am his love. And he just said to me, rise up my love, my love, my fair one and come away. Is this Jesus calling me to come away with him? Is that how I interpret this? Well, this, what we're listening to is the audio version of the very famous devotional morning and evening by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And this happened to be the devotion for today. April the 25th, 2023. So let's listen to this devotional and see how Charles Haddon Spurgeon handled this. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to back it up. We're going to listen. Again, they're quoting Song of Solomon, chapter two, verse 10. I would, I would challenge you to look at it for yourself. Let's see exactly what is said here. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 10. Lo, I hear the voice of my beloved. He speaks to me. Fair weather is smiling upon the face of the earth, and he would not have me spiritually asleep while nature is all around me awakening from her winter's rest. He bids me rise up, and well he may. 
for I have long enough been lying among the pots of worldliness. He is risen. I am risen in him. Immediately you know where this is going. Charles Haddon Spurgeon is taking Song of Solomon chapter 2 verse 10 and making this about Jesus and us. Jesus is calling us to wake up, to rise up from our spiritual slumber, to rise up from us sleeping in worldliness and to rise up and come away with him. Is that is that what the Song of Solomon is about? Is this a book about Jesus' love for us? Now, personally, I think, and I would, for today's focus, I would challenge you to do this. Just take the Song of Solomon, start reading it. Song of Solomon chapter one, verse one, and just start reading it carefully. Make sure you understand exactly what is being said literally or poetically, what it's identifying, what it's saying. And then ask yourself, do I really want to apply that to Jesus and me? Do I really want to apply this to Jesus and me? I mean, come on. I want you to really do that. Now, I tried to demonstrate to this my, to my church many years ago. I'm like, okay, we're going to interpret the Song of Solomon as speaking of Jesus and his love for his church. And then we got kind of, I don't know how far we got into it. And then people started realizing, ooh, this kind of gets very uncomfortable because you'll realize, I don't know if this is about Jesus' love for his church. I think it may be about something else, but you you can draw your own conclusions. I'm going to back this up and play it again, but you can see immediately see what Charles Haddon Spurgeon did. Song of Solomon, chapter two, verse 10, my beloved spake and said unto me, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away for lo, the winter is past. The rain is over and God. Oh, oh, wait. Yeah. Okay. And of course, this is the April 25th. A devotional spring is in the air. So we're going to add spring. We're going to add Jesus and us. And we're going to make this poetic and it's going to, oh, we have that dramatic, that, that music in the background. Oh, doesn't this sound so wonderful? Doesn't it sound so pious? Doesn't it sound so spiritual? Doesn't it sound so godly? I mean, for crying out loud, as Charles Haddon Spurgeon, how we, how dare we call anything into question? I don't know if you can do that with the Song of Solomon. Because Song of Solomon, I mean, at times, would you not agree that it gets kind of explicit? Do we take the explicit nature of the Song of Solomon and make it into a metaphor for the love Jesus has for us or the love we have for Jesus? That just seems like, uh, I don't, I'm not so sure about that. Maybe we could just say Song of Solomon is, is a book about, I don't know, physical and Emotional love between two people is, is that is, would that be wrong to do? Would that be would we be committing some horrible heinous hermeneutical crime, or is the hermeneutical crime trying to take a verse? And here's the question: Song of Solomon. I'll just I'll just give you some guided Bible study exercise questions for you to work on. Is the Song of Solomon quoted in the New Testament? And is it quoted in the New Testament? And when it, and if it is quoted, is it directly pointing to Jesus? Is the Song of Solomon quoted in the New Testament? And if it is, is the quote being quoted pointing you to Jesus directly or giving you some clue and how it's being interpreted? That, that, that's, that, that's your today's focus assignment, right? There, that's simple. Is the Song of Solomon quoted in the New Testament? And if it is, is the quote used to point you directly to Jesus? How is the Song of Solomon being quoted in the New Testament? All right, I'm going to back this up. Let's listen to this again. 
Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 10. Lo, I hear the voice of my beloved. He speaks to me. Fair weather is smiling upon the face of the earth, and he would not have me spiritually asleep while nature is all around me awakening from her winter's rest. He bids me rise up, and well he may, for I have long enough been lying among the pots of worldliness. He is risen. I am risen in him. Why then should I cleave unto the dust? From lower loves, desires, pursuits, and aspirations, I would rise towards him. He calls me by the sweet title of my love and counts me fair. This is a good argument for my rising. If he has thus exalted me and thinks me thus comely, how can I linger in the tent? Okay, someone just left a message uh, in the chat saying, I recently did a Sunday school lesson over Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 9. There's nothing that clearly states that kind of kindness by David points to Christ, but the connection seems clear from a man after God's own heart. Okay. Uh, what I would say, I mean, I, I, I'd have to hear the lesson to know. I, I would definitely, what, here's, what I, here's how I would tend to look at it. Um, if we are looking at a story that clearly shows the kindness by David, right? David's great kindness, his, his compassion, his love. Here's what I know. I can, I, this is what I can do. I can say, David demonstrated such great kindness and love, all right? The, uh, and Jesus calls us to do that very thing. I, I, I don't know necessarily if I can say this points to Jesus, but I know I can say this, Jesus tells us to love even our enemies, to love our neighbor as ourselves. That is what we are called to do. We fall short of it over and over and over. But here's an example of David demonstrating that kind of Christ-like love, that kind of Christ-like kindness in this situation. I don't know if I would turn around and say, well, see, this is a showing us that David pictures Jesus, or we could do it this way, as David showed this love and uh, kindness to this individual Jesus demonstrated a greater love and compassion by dying for us while we were yet sinners, right? In other words, I could draw a correlation that, see, to me, that's okay to do, to, to say, hey, this David pictures Jesus here. That's where I would be like, well, wait a minute, 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 wait a minute. David demonstrates actions that Christ calls us to demonstrate. In that particular story, obviously David didn't always do that, but in that particular story, he does. And this reminds us of the love and compassion that Jesus demonstrated towards us who were helpless, hopeless, and we deserved wrath, but he died for us. So I can, I can use the story of David to say, hey, this reminds me of what Jesus did, but Jesus did it in a greater way, perfect way, more f more full way, and a holy way. It, it's different than coming and going. Look, this right here, this 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 picture's Jesus. No, because that seems to indicate that's what the story is there for. I can say in this story, we see what David did. Now this reminds me of what Christ did for us. I think it's all how you approach the text. 
if I approach the text as this text was written to point me, like that's the purpose of it. That's a big claim because you would think someone in the New Testament would have taken a passage that its purpose was to point to Jesus and utilize it for such. But I can definitely get, I can definitely get, use an Old Testament story and then talk about Jesus. That That's just being, it's just all how I word it and how we get there, if that makes sense, right? That's how we get there. So David does the, whatever actions David, you know, you could take any of the stories of David. You could see certain actions and go, okay, well, here we go. Jesus did this in a more perfect and full way. Not necessarily saying it's picturing Jesus, but clearly I can get to Jesus from it, if that makes sense. I hope, I hope you can see that distinction. I hope you can see the distinction. Just preachers will come in and go like, this is a picture of Jesus. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Are you sure? Are you sure? Like, again, Song of Solomon. I, I, I can't get there and say that's a picture of Jesus. Okay. Okay, good. I, I, I hope that helps. I hope that helps. I just think it's how we word it. It's how we explain it. Like, I can read a story and go, this reminds me of what Jesus did for me. We did a little bit of that. Well, see, I think with Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew 4, we, we, we got ultimately to what Jesus did for us. And then I went back to Deuteronomy 8 and then demonstrated that some of the things that were God provided for them, Jesus provided for us spiritually. Now, the reason I did this was a, I, I tried to uh, justify my reasonings. Number one, if you'll go back and listen to our, uh, la- I think our last uh, two episodes in our Bible study exercise series on temptation, I, I definitely drew a correlation between Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew 4. Now, there were justifications for doing so. Number one, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8 in his temptation. So that connects the passages. Two, look at the correlations. Look at the connections between Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew 4. I think we came up with 10 or 12, like, whoa, very similar things. Uh and and I and I thought, okay, I think I feel somewhat justified in doing that. Someone just said I, the entire book of Ruth. Yes, I think I think Ruth. There's certain things about Ruth when you read it, you're like, well, wait a minute, that's odd. Like, look at the names here, and look at the meaning of the names, and something's going on. Something's going on here. Um, and so you can possibly start seeing it. Now, again, you still have to be careful with that. I, what, I guess what the point I try to make is, is I don't want to go to an Old Testament book and then claim this is written to point me to Jesus unless I've got something dogmatic to assert that, to assert that. However, I may have something in the Old Testament that makes me stop and go, hmm, that's interesting. That's interesting. Because if I look at what David did in this situation, Okay, he showed compassion, he showed grace, he showed mercy. Maybe in a situation where he, he could have just shown like to have the person killed. Well, Jesus, right? Uh, he shows compassion and mercy to us while we were yet sinners. Okay, I can see a correlation there. I think pointing out the correlations, pointing out the similarities, that's a good Bible stu- student. To open the text and say, this text was written to point to Jesus. Now I'm making a claim of the original intent of a passage. Now, if the New Testament takes that passage and then quotes it and says it's about Jesus, well, then who am I to argue? Because now I would be arguing against inspired scripture. 
If so, I'm trying to draw that distinction. Obviously, whenever we see connections, we see correlations. We see, wow, that's a good example. Sometimes what I like to say is, this is a good example, right? I could look at something David did and say, this is a good example of what Jesus did. Now, probably somewhere in preaching, I may actually use, this is a good, I may use the phrase, it's a good picture, but I have to explain exactly what I mean by that. So if I say, this is a good example of it, then that means here we've read this story. I know these truths about Jesus. Now I'm going to go, we're going to use this story and I'm going to get us from this story to what these truths about Jesus that correlate, that connect, that this is a good example of. So it's really just being very, very careful how we handle the text and how we articulate it. I just don't want to give people the idea that they can just open their Bible, you know, go to somewhere in Leviticus and just like, oh, there's Jesus right there. There's Jesus right there. I'm like, uh, I think that's talking. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, I, I think we just have to be careful there. And Ruth, I think what, and I think another thing you can do is when you're reading the text and things just seem to be there's more here than meets the eye. Start explaining why you think there's more there than meets the eye. Start explaining why. The meaning of names, the way things are described. Maybe it's just so odd or so weird. You're like, wait, that is such a weird story. Like you've got all of these other stories and this one just seems to be like so out of place. There's either because of the detail given or, or, it's just, yeah, there's something. And then if you can articulate textually why you think something is going on, then you work through all of the unique features of it. And you're like, well, it's hard for me not to see this picturing this and then, or as an example of, this, or you may even use the word picturing, but if you can clearly identify what it is in the text that's making you think that. So I, I, I just think we have to be careful how we handle it because I've seen people take stories from the Old Testament and say they're pictures of this or this and that and you end up in major problem I'll, again I, and, and maybe I'm maybe I'm just paranoid of this because you know for those who don't know you know I was a student at the family radio school of the Bible with one Harold camping as my teacher all right now Harold camping started off very reformed in his theology an amillennialist, scripture and scripture alone. I mean, it was like, you know, very, very, very good approach to scripture. And then he, he kept coming up with this idea that there was, I think, a three levels of meaning in the text. And one of them was a spiritual one, a, a gospel presentation in the text. So you find the historical, uh, I find, I can't remember the second one. And then the third one was you look for this like spiritual connection. You find the gospel, you find Jesus in it, right? Well, he, for those who don't know, the next thing you know, he was saying that he had found in the Bible that the world was going to come to an end in 1994. Then he used the book of Jeremiah to supposedly prove that the church was now under the control of Satan and that everyone needed to, that we were under a satanic captivity and everyone needed to leave their congregations because if you stayed in the church, you took the mark of the beast and it just got more and more bizarre and more and more weird. But he would have been telling you, I'm only using scripture, but See, Scripture pictures these things. Scripture pictures these things. See, see, Jeremiah is a picture. It's picturing what's going to happen to the church. And you're like, I think it's picturing 
what actually happened to Israel. Okay, I think it was actually giving us a historic, a a prophecy of what was actually going to happen to Israel and then a description of what happened to Israel. So that's all I'm saying is if you're not careful, people will be drawing pictures and correlations from things that are not supposed to be there. So I think with every text, we must exercise discipline and caution. And when we're going to say, ooh, look at this story, I think that pictures Jesus. We then state this. Number one, I do not have a New Testament passage that quotes this or says it's about Jesus. We state that. Number two, I am not saying this was the author's original intent. Not saying that. I'm not saying that was the original intent of this historical action. What I am saying, if I look at this historical action of David, it's hard for me not to think about what Jesus did for me or what Jesus did for you when he as died for us while we were yet sinners. Hey, when I look to this story in Ruth, it's quoted, Ruth is quoted at whatever the number of times is, or, or it's not quoted in the New Testament. You'd have to figure that out. I don't have those numbers currently in front of me. And uh, it is, or it never is used to point to Jesus. However, when we read Ruth, here are some of the textual things that seems to make me think it is something bigger is going on here. And then sometimes what I will do, and I think it's easier for me to say, is this is just a hypothesis. This is just a, this is just my feeling. I cannot be dogmatic about it. Same with Song of Solomon. I just don't think I, I, well, I clearly, I don't think with the Song of Solomon, I can say, hey, this is about Jesus and his love for me. I, I, I have a hard time with that. I have a very hard time with that. But again, I would challenge you with the Song of Solomon. Is it ever quoted in the New Testament? And if it is quoted, is it ever quoted in a way that points to Jesus? And if it's not, then that should give you great pause, if that makes sense, if that makes sense. And I'm very appreciative of the person asking the questions in the chat, because because lots of I get lots of emails about this, actually. I get lots of emails about this, because a lot of people are just like, well, that's about Jesus. And I'm like, I don't know why you think it's about Jesus. Where did you get that from? Where did you get that from? Well, my pastor said it's a picture of Jesus. And I'm like, well, okay. What do you mean that it's a picture? Are you telling me that's the original end? Like, a lot, I'm going to get emails today saying the saga, Song of Solomon is about Jesus and his love for the church. How do you not know this? And I'm going to be like, uh, have you read the Song of Solomon? Because that would get really, really uncomfortable. But say I but at the same time, I give it over to you for you to do your own research. Is the Song of Solomon quoted in the New Testament? If it, and if it is, is it, is it ever used to point to Jesus? If we, we can eliminate that, then we would immediately have to then say, ooh, what is it in the text of the Song of Solomon that would make me think Jesus is in this? This picture is Jesus. I would have to find something textually to do that. Well, there's things to me in the text that seem to be more explicit, speaking of almost a physical kind of intimacy that I think would almost lead me not to say it's about Jesus and the church, if that makes sense. Um, I I hope that makes sense. And I'm sorry, I'm leaning away from the mic because I'm looking over the computer to make sure there's no more comments. But but I do appreciate that. I, I hope that helps everyone. 
I hope it helps everyone. But let's go back to this devotional, right? So, so we took a little pause there to try to answer those questions. Hopefully it answered it. And, 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 and if someone says, what's your general rule? My, again, my general rule is, okay, is this Old Testament passage quoted in the New Testament and does it point to Jesus? If not, then I'm going to be very careful and I'm going to take it then by a case by case basis. And what I may say is, hmm, I see this historical uh, event. It's factual. It's actual. It occurred. Don't take away from the, the historical truthfulness of it. And this has to be served as a good example of what Jesus was talking about or about what Jesus did. If that makes sense. And even if I use the word, this picture is what Jesus did for us. Even if I use that term, I have to at least make sure people understand. I'm not saying that was the original intent because I would not have a hard time demonstrating or proving that. Unless there's this just weird connection between the New Testament and the Old Testament passage, like Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew 4. The connection between those two is utterly fascinating to me, like I mean, how many different connections do you need? I think we, we came up with like 10. It was crazy. And we were moving like at lightning speed Sunday night, trying to get through it all because we got started so late Sunday night because uh, I was trying to help somebody with something. And it got, it, it was like, it was almost like, you know, 620 before we started. So we had to move quickly. But those connections to me were fascinating. Like, Boom, boom, boom. And so then you're like, okay. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8. So like there, I I feel confident. I feel comfortable drawing correlations. There's others I would have to be like, I don't know. But I'm always willing to hear people's arguments for it. I'm just trying to protect us from going off the rails with pictures and typology. Because once you start down that path, then pictures and typology become very subjective and it's based on a person's imagination, not sound hermeneutical principles and rules that govern us and protect us. And then you end off, well, like Harold Camping. Nothing, that's where you're going to naturally go, but you can definitely get yourself in some bad trouble there. But let's go back and listen to the rest of this now. All right, let's see how Spurgeon handles this. Here we go. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 10. Lo, I hear the voice of my beloved. He speaks to me. Fair weather is smiling upon the face of the earth, and he would not have me spiritually asleep while nature is all around me awakening from her winter's rest. He bids me rise up, and well he may. For I have long enough been lying among the pots of worldliness. He is risen. I am risen in him. Why then should I cleave unto the dust? From lower loves, desires, pursuits, and aspirations, I would rise towards him. He calls me by the sweet title of my love and counts me fair. This is a good argument for my rising. If he has thus exalted me and thinks me thus comely, how can I linger in the tents of Kedah and find congenial associates among the sons of men? He bids me come away, further and further from everything selfish, groveling, worldly, sinful he calls me, 
yea, from the outwardly religious world which knows him not and has no sympathy with the mystery of the higher life, he calls me. Come away has no harsh sound in it to my ear. For what is there to hold me in this wilderness of vanity and sin? O oh, my Lord, would that I would come away. But I am taken among the thorns and cannot escape from them as I would. I would, if it were possible, have neither eyes nor ears nor heart for sin. Thou callest me to thyself by saying, Come away. And this is a melodious call indeed. To come to thee is to come home from exile, to come to land out of the raging storm, to come to rest after long labor, to come to the goal of my desires and the summit of my wishes. But Lord, how can a stone rise? How can a lump of clay come away from the horrible pit? Oh, raise me, draw me, thy grace can do it. Send forth thy Holy Spirit to kindle sacred flames of love in my heart, and I will continue to rise until I leave life and time behind me, and indeed come away. Now, that is from, again, Morning and Evening by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. You can find it online. You can read it for yourself. If you have the uh, Sermon Audio Beta website, they have a section called Daily Devotional, and it's just right there. They have a different audio of it, but you can read it there as well if you're using the Sermon Audio Beta website, which looks really, really nice. It looks amazing on uh, the MacBook Pro. I don't know what it looks like on the other computers, but it, it's really nice, and it just says Daily Devotional. It updates every day with Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Morning, Evening, and Faith Checkbook. So there's three devotionals. Uh, so uh, the, it, again, that's a th this is an audio different from what they have there. So there's there's lots of different audio versions of Morning and Evening by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. But if you look at that, I mean, it's so poetic, it's so beautiful, it's so well spoken. It, I mean, it sounds so spiritual, it sounds so pious, it sounds so godly. Who could argue against it? Well, my only issue is what is that? What Song of Solomon chapter two verse ten is about? See, no matter how godly we make it, no matter how spirit... Now, listen to me. I know, I know I'm going to get in trouble. I know I'm get, about to get in trouble here. I don't care how theologically correct we make it. If it's not what the text is about, if it's not what the text is pointing to, if it's not the purpose of the text, I don't care how theologically right we are. I don't care how spiritual it sounds. I don't care how godly it sounds. And I don't care how good it preaches. It's bad because we're not rightly handling the word of God. That's the point. And I know that goes against everyone's thinking because like, well, it's spiritual. It's godly. He didn't say anything necessarily theologically incorrect about our love for Jesus and his love for us and us being called away from the world. I can go to other scriptures to maybe prove that. Well, then use the other scriptures. I don't think Song of Solomon chapter 2 verse 10 is about that. I just don't think it is. I, I, I just don't think it is. Now, if you if you can demonstrate to me that the Song of Solomon is a book about Christ's love for me and the church, 
and you can demonstrate that through a verse by verse exposition of the whole book, then okay. But you're going to be, I mean, you're going to be allegorizing the entire book. You're going to be spiritualizing the entire book. So it's actual historical meaning, what it actually meant, unless you're going to argue that's what it actually meant. It was never meant to be taken as an actual book about a love between a man and a woman. That those, those are big claims. Now, I, that, this may be an extreme example, but I'm saying I don't care how good our, 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 I don't care how, how correct our theology is if we are misusing a text to arrive at that good theology. If the text doesn't teach it, then don't use it to teach that doctrine or theology. Teach what I would, what I tend to do is if I, for example, let's say I'm going to teach that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that Jesus calls us to love even our enemies, but we fall short of that. But there is a bit, there's an Old Testament example of someone who was in a position who could have possibly had someone killed, who could have shown no compassion, no mercy, yet they showed mercy and compassion. Here is an Old Testament example of this New Testament truth. I, 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 I love doing that. Start with the New Testament truth and then go find an Old Testament example of that truth being lived out in a real tangible way and a historical setting. Instead of starting with the Old Testament passage going, this is a picture of Jesus. I say, I'll start with the New Testament truth, then go back to the Old Testament and say, here is a historical example of this truth being demonstrated, being lived out in a real tangible way. Then I'm not changing the meaning of the Old Testament text. I'm allowing the Old Testament text to be a historical narrative that is declaring something demonstrating something, but I'm now using it as an example of this greater theological spiritual truth about that is taught about Christ. That, to me, maybe is a more correct way to handle it. Right? The story of Jonah, right? It is a story of someone refusing to, to listen to God. He gets swallowed by the, the large fish, and he's in the belly of it for three days and three nights, right? Well, Jesus takes that story and says, as Jonah was there, that's how it's going to be for me. He's like, hey, you want to understand how this is going to work? Remember when Jonah was in the belly of the fish for that long? I'm going to be in the ground for that long. Like Jesus uses it as an illustration. Now, some would say, no, 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 Jonah, that happened to Jonah so that it could picture Jesus. Was it or did Jesus simply use it to illustrate what was going to happen? Now, if Jesus says it was it was uh, written about me, that it was declared about me, like if he makes a dogmatic assertion, then I may change my tune, if that makes sense. But Song of Solomon, that is your... Today's focus. I know we went 40 minutes. I was supposed to go 15 minutes, but that's okay. If someone's listening and they got questions, man, I'll go three hours. But uh, it raises just lots of questions and how we handle the text. I guess, I guess my concern always is that we handle the text as carefully as we can and make sure that we don't turn to Song of Solomon. I mean, what Charles Haddon Spurgeon there sound, sounded beautiful, poetic, and pious. I just don't think it was anything accurately in handling the text.
I just don't think it was. What do you think? Let's talk today. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. That's the whole purpose of the today's focus, to spark conversation, to spark discussion. Let me know. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Let's fill up the inbox with your thoughts, your perspective, your hypotheses, your theories, your thesis. What what do you think in regards to how the Song of Solomon should be handled? Which and then maybe just in regard in regards to many Old Testament passages. How how do you think they should be handled? All right. I would love to get your thoughts. Email me newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Everyone have a wonderful day. That is your today's focus for Tuesday. April the 25th, 2023, it's now 11.06 a.m. And if for some reason I started this broadcast by saying it's Thursday, that is a mistake. It is Tuesday, April the 25th. I hope everyone has a great day. And I would love to get your thoughts about the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 10. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. (laughs) 